Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we had the opportunity to visit Sepphoris here in the Galilee region in Israel with Dr. Eric Myers, an expert in Sepphoris. He spent over 40 years directing digs in Israel, including at Sepphoris, and it was wonderful to tour the site and hear his perspectives on everything uh, from history to the pottery he found at that site. So let's recap what we learned from Dr. Myers. Well, Sepphoris was originally settled in the 6th or 7th century BC, but Dr. Myers contended uh, that it was shortly before Jesus' birth that Herod the Great conquered Sepphoris and made it one of the administrative districts for the Roman army, thus propelling Sepphoris into what would end up becoming its greatness. Sepphoris was Jewish by the late Hellenistic period, which was around 100 BC. We know that Josephus, the historian of the first century, very famous historian, we've talked about him a number of times here, including with regard to Masada, so he called Sepphoris the ornament of all Galilee. Sepphoris was transformed from a town uh, from first century BC to an urban center, and it was so close to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And we talked about that a lot with Dr. Myers, about how Nazareth and Sepphoris being so close, being, being just, just very near, that Jesus could have spent a lot of time there. And around the time Jesus grew up, Sepphoris was transformed into a royal city of Herod, Antipas. So it makes sense, again, that Jesus would have worked there as he worked as a carpenter. And we don't know this for sure, um, really, in, in the New Testament, we have a lapse in the story of Jesus' life as a teenager and a young man before his public ministry. So we have no idea uh, for sure if he was at Sepphoris. We can't know that definitively, but we would guess. Because now Nazareth was, was really small. It was more like a village, just a couple hundred people living there. And that was an average size for a small village. But Sepphoris' population grew once the royal family of Herod Antipas settled there. And there were probably close to 10,000 people there, Dr. Meyer said. So Sepphoris isn't mentioned in the New Testament. And I hadn't thought of this approach that Dr. Myers uh, took with regard to why it isn't mentioned. It makes sense, though, why Jesus would have stayed away from Sepphoris as, as uh, he worked in public ministry. Jesus' message, Dr. Myers said, was for the poor and the needy. And, and he was preaching to the masses in small villages in Galilee, not the new bustling city of Sepphoris that the royal family was um, essentially renovating. Plus, the royal family was associated with the murder of John the Baptist. It was Herod Antipas who ultimately ordered John's beheading, although he was influenced by a woman he loved. What happened is that John the Baptist had been telling Herod that he shouldn't have taken Herodias, a woman who was his brother's wife, as his own wife. Herodias, the wife, wanted John killed, and when Herod asked Herodias' daughter what she wanted at a banquet one night, 
She asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Obviously, she had been influenced by her mother. Jesus and John were cousins, so obviously the loss of John was hard for Jesus and probably served to fuel Jesus' dislike of Sepphoris, where Herod Antipas was at. All in all, it makes sense why Sepphoris isn't mentioned as a city in the New Testament as a place for Jesus' public ministry. Beyond that, we got to see some of Sepphoris' beautiful art that is left there. One of my favorite mosaics we saw was a mosaic of a woman just staring out at us, a very beautiful woman. It's called the Mona Lisa of the Galilee, and it's dated from 200 years after Jesus. And Dr. Myers told us why this mosaic is significant. It tells us that the Jews at this time reveled in Greco-Roman culture and saw it as a way to be part of the rest of the world that embraced a culture that was just exploding at this time. The Jews didn't shy away from this new culture. Rather, they embraced it. And as Dr. Myers pointed out, adopting modern ways is the way that groups survive. So the Jews changed how they dressed, uh, what food they ate, and their living standards. But all the same, the Jews still rejected paganism. So that's the super important and interesting fact, that despite living in a pagan culture, the Jews still rejected the pagan gods. But there was also a symbiosis between Greco-Roman culture and Judaism that is also emphasized by the zodiac mosaic inside Sepphoris' synagogue. Yes, a zodiac mosaic inside a synagogue. And that piece of art was just a few hundred years later than the mosaic of the woman, so still after Jesus. It's odd, but it shows how the Jewish people now at Sepphoris in this time are accepting a new culture. This zodiac mosaic illustrates key scenes from Judaism, but it reinterprets them in terms of new styles that were emerging at that time in the world. So again, embracing the new culture, but still staying true to their religion, which has defined Judaism for, at this point now, thousands of years. Lastly, Dr. Myers talked about pottery at the very end of the tour, which was my favorite part. I always say that if I could, uh, if I could redo my education, I would go get a degree in archaeology and move somewhere where I could just sift through dirt um, and search for really ancient finds all day, every day. But, alas, I study English and biology in college, and I doubt the archaeology dream will come true. But still, it was great to hear from Dr. Myers, an archaeologist himself, concerning what he found at this site. So pottery allows archaeologists, as he said, to get a handle on chronology, so time periods and, and timing, and then where things fit in to that chronology, the history. Dr. Meyer spoke of putting coins and pottery together as a more sophisticated method for timing, for dating. And archaeologists can even tell where certain ceramics and pottery originated. And then they can kind of assume trade routes because maybe the pieces of pottery were traded and ended up in a new location. So they can kind of see how trade routes worked. And lastly, they could see the demographic of people that lived at a site. If the pottery at a site were nice and expensive, it indicated that a richer people lived there. And that's one of the reasons Dr. Myers was able to know Sepphoris was rather well off. 
Well, I really hope that you enjoyed our visit to Sepphoris. I've heard from a few of you that you had never previously even heard of Sepphoris, so I'm glad you've now experienced it. And you've really gotten it all. Not many people can say that they went to Sepphoris with an expert like Dr. Myers, who helped excavate the site. Well, now we're going to head over to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. As we make the quick drive of about three miles, let's work on our Hebrew here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Instead of me just telling you what we already know, I'll prompt you and let's see what you're remembering. Okay, so first of all, Virtual Voyagers, how do you ask a man in Hebrew if he understands English? Ata mavin inglit. Add some inflection in there. Ata mavin inglit. So that would be asking a man if he understands English. What if he says ken in response? What does that mean, ken? Yes, yes, it does mean yes. So yes and yes. You're doing great. I am so impressed with how all of you are improving. As we spend time here in Israel, it's important to immerse ourselves in all parts of the culture, including the language. Imagine someone coming to visit America, our home country, and spending a good amount of time there, like we have in Israel. It would show respect and interest in the culture of the United States if they were to learn some of our language. So we want to do the same as we're here in Israel. What about asking someone how much money something is? We learned about this last week and why it's good to be able to ask this in Hebrew. If you can ask that, there's less chance you'll get taken advantage of, even in the slightest, by a shop owner, uh, and, and you'll show that you're a knowledgeable tourist. Even better, you could bargain a little bit with the shop owner and try to get an even better deal. Remember, in Israel, that's almost expected. To ask how much something is, do you remember? Kamaze ole? Perfect, kamaze ole. We also learned how to count the numbers 1 through 5 in Hebrew, and we're going to add to that today. Let's start with 1 through 5 and say it together, and then I'll continue with 6 through 10, and you can listen. Achat, Stein, Shalosh, Arba, Chamesh. Now 6 through 10. Shesh, Sheva, Shmone, Tesha, Eser. So again, six through ten, I'll say it slowly. Shesh, Sheva, Shmone, Tesha, Eser. Now let's practice. We're going to say one through ten together. Here we go. Achat, Stein, Shalosh, Arba, Hamesh, Shesh, Sheva, Shmone, Tesha Eser. Great. Well, we're making really awesome progress with Hebrew, and now your knowledge of basic phrases is really starting to get built up, and I hope you're feeling confident. We'll practice all of this next time when we're in the bus. But for now, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we are here at Nazareth, so let's all hop off. There are definitely some interesting excavations that have happened at Nazareth, and we can talk about those later. There's also a valley between Nazareth and Sepphoris 
that's currently being explored more. But one of the highlights of a trip to Nazareth is Nazareth Village. It's basically where people have recreated Nazareth from Jesus' day, and there are actors dressed up in what first century clothing is believed to have looked like. There are live animals, uh, booths with people demonstrating their craft, and more. It really lets you experience what Nazareth would have been like in the first century. And that's mainly where I want to spend the bulk of our remaining day. And if we have time, we'll go see some of the other sites here in Nazareth. You know, I was talking with Dr. Myers from our last tour at Sepphoris briefly as we were walking back to the bus. And he actually mentioned to me that he helped set up Nazareth Village, which is really cool. Let me go grab tickets for us, and then we'll be able to head into the theater and get introduced to the site with a short film before we head out into the open-air museum portion. Okay, we're in luck. Another film is starting in under two minutes. So let's hurry over and get our seats. As the lights dim, sit back and enjoy this preview of Nazareth Village from Sergio and Rhoda in Israel. Today, we're visiting a very special place. A place that takes us back in time to the first century and recreates the life as it was in the times of Jesus. Exact replicas of the first century houses, synagogue, mikveh, and olive presses have been carefully built using the same methods that would have been used by Joseph the carpenter. The scenes are brought to life as villagers populate the farm and houses, living and working with the same type of clothing, pottery, tools, and methods that Mary and Jesus would have used. A carefully researched recreation of Jesus' hometown, there's really no other place like it. This are the last remaining fields worked by Jesus' friends, family, and fellow villagers. This is Nazareth Village. Welcome to the first century. This is how Nazareth would have looked like during the time of Jesus. Let's see it. We are in Joseph's workshop, Joseph the husband of Mary, yes. And uh, we have some first century tools here. We have the adze, we have the chisels, we have a sharpening stone, a sanding stone, all tools from the first century. And we have um, an olive crusher, but the coolest tool is the drill. This is completely environmental friendly drill. See. So we grab the tip and we keep a good down um, like this. I should keep my day job. So while Joseph would have worked right here in his carpentry, 
Mary would have been right next to his side, cooking the meal for the family, preparing the food for everybody. And the Bible tells us that women weren't only housewives, they also had some occupations. Come, let's see Hannah's workshop. Just like a Proverb 31 woman, or Lydia, or Tabitha in the New Testament, worked and they used their hands to produce something. They earned their wages in a good way. And here we have Hannah's workshop where she sits all day and she weaves. We have the sheep on the land, they shear them and she takes care of the rest. She washes the wool, unknots the wool, she spins the wool, dyes the wool and she makes beautiful 100% wool scarves that are like this. This is an old one, but they are just wonderful and they use them for winter because it kept them very warm. We are in the only first century synagogue replica. This is incredible. This is what it would look like 2,000 years ago. What was it used for? Take a look at those seats. These are not like your regular pews in church where you sit and look at the stage. No, you sit here and you look at each other. Look at it. It goes all the way around and the person sitting here is looking at the people sitting on the other side. You look at each other's faces, it's a fellowship center. So if you already guessed it, it was multifunctional. Synagogue in Hebrew is Beit Knesset. Beit Knesset means the house of gathering, a fellowship house. It was used for teaching children to read and write throughout the week. It was used in the courthouse to solve disputes among the people. And on Sabbaths, it was used to study the Torah. This is how Jesus would have come and read from the Isaiah scroll. Open it and read it in a synagogue that's looking very much like this one. It's quite remarkable that after 2,000 years, this piece of land remained untouched by the modern civilization. And to that, we can thank Nazareth Trust, a nonprofit that owns this land and oversees the oldest hospital in Israel right around the corner. It's impossible to show you all of the incredible attractions of this place in these short five minutes. The actual tour takes more than an hour. They take you on a guided tour, first through a museum where the artifacts bring the scriptures to life, and then out into the fields, wine press, the farm, the dressed up villagers. When I was done with the tour, my mind was blown away. Nazareth village is truly remarkable. And the best part is, they're focused on being a living presentation of the life, times, and teachings of Jesus for all the world to see. So if you're in Israel, don't miss the opportunity to visit the Nazareth village. Well, we certainly aren't missing out on the opportunity to visit this awesome site. What a great introduction to Nazareth village and what men and women like Mary and Joseph would have done for work back in the first century. And that synagogue was pretty cool. We'll see more of that later. As they alluded to in that video, that was just a small sampling of what we're about to experience here, and I'll be guiding you through it. By the time we're done here at Nazareth Village, I think it's going to take you a few minutes to reorient back to the 21st century. All right, time to get up off the comfy chairs. Let's walk on into the first century AD here at Nazareth Village on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. 
check out these streets. They look super old, and there are some fences on both sides to keep the animals from wandering. Ooh, uh, see there to the left, those two donkeys? And they're kept from wandering too far by being attached to that olive tree with a long rope. Well, I, I guess that kind of looks like an olive tree stump. The tree has definitely had better days. Come on into the shade here. Here's our first stop, Joseph's Workshop. We saw a preview of this in the video inside the theater. But here's a man dressed in first century clothes, and let's observe what he's doing. So he's working on a piece of wood, and he has his chisels and his sharpening and sanding stones uh, to get those nice, uh, cute corners and those really sanded and smooth uh, pieces of wood. He has an olive crusher. Olive oil was important, especially here at Nazareth Village. We'll get more about that later. And then there's also this drill, which is super cool. Obviously, there were no motors back then. So what they did was take this long stick and attach a piece of rope to it. And the rope plus the stick formed a triangle. And at the tip of the triangle, they put a short piece of wood that was positioned vertically, so up and down. And you could hold the vertical piece of wood and spin it back and forth by moving the larger piece of wood in your other hand. I know, it seems odd. It's weird for me to wrap my head around this idea, too. But then they would have had like a nail or, or something attached to the end of, of a little piece of wood. And it would slowly twist into its desired place. So Joseph would have worked in a place like our friend right here is working. He could have made things for his house, perhaps. Or he, he could have been hired by people from Nazareth or maybe even in Sepphoris. Like Dr. Meyer said, there weren't a ton of people in Nazareth. So we have to imagine Joseph, and Jesus for that matter, spent more time in the next biggest town over. Well, let's head over to the kitchen next to the carpentry. Oh my goodness, we'll have to check this out next time because we are out of time for right now. Come back next time as we finish up our tour in Nazareth Village. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure here in first century Nazareth.